0: Well, oh, good morning, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> good morning. Well, well, yesterday we looked at the theme being examples to war. The, the ecclesia at Macedonia, Thessalonica there, was an example, wasn't it? An example to all the ecclesias across the province of Macedonia and across all of Asia in the way that the ecclesia was being beaten and bashed and thrashed and how it was setting out a, that distinctive noise, that, that noise of encouragement that noise of receiving the gospel message. We, we also reflected upon how we've received the gospel and how we should receive it gladly and then pass it on to others. And we, we thought a little bit about that. And importantly, the responsibility we all have of being a, a personal witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that was quite heart-searching, I believe. Though this Ecclesia was an example to all in Macedonia, indeed it became the blueprint of all Gentile Ecclesias thereafter, it had a problem. Now that shouldn't get us down, brothers and sisters, that should never get us down when we've got problems within our Ecclesia, because even the very best, such as the Ecclesia at Thessalonica, had a problem. What we should worry about is not the problems, but how we deal with them, prayerfully, collectively, in our resolve to keep error out. But at the same time, to build and encourage and strengthen our brothers and sisters. Saving our brothers and sisters. That's the theme of the Apostle Paul. Wanting to see our brothers in God's coming kingdom. I always remember Brother Harry Tennant uh, saying to me once, He said, you know, Brother Stephen, you're looking for the perfect ecclesia and if you found it and joined it, you'd spoil it. And I think there's some truth in all of that, isn't there? Not about me specifically. Of course not. (laughs) But we should never expect, should we, the perfect ecclesia, this side of God's kingdom. We shouldn't get down if we've got problems within our meetings. But we need to have The fortitude and the faith and the courage to deal with those problems in the appropriate way. Ecclesial life is designed in many ways to have problems. They are the ways that we strengthen one another. That's the way we are shaped and moulded for God's coming kingdom. Shall we have a look at the problem here at Thessalonica? Well, it's certainly illustrated in the second epistle which God willing we'll look at tomorrow. So let's begin there and I'm going to show you it already existed by the time Paul wrote his first So, where we want to look is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it was a very genuine problem. In fact, there was a misunderstanding about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a very genuine concern that they had. And so here then, in in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2, we read these words, "...that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word." ...nor by letter. Remember this. Paul was thinking about their faith. We, we looked at that yesterday, didn't we? How is your faith? It was lovely, actually. Ruth told me over breakfast. You know, a, a lot of mums and dads came up to me yesterday and said, How's your faith, Ruth? She said, I, I didn't know what they were asking me for. Uh, so thank you for doing that, brothers and sisters. But there you are. Nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as at the day of Christ is at hand. Now, again, if you look in your margin, the Lord is now present... In fact, the revised version says, the Lord is now present. It's a past tense. The Lord has arrived. And this ecclesia was an ecclesia facing persecution. And so they were wondering, why are we facing persecution? Why have we got problems continuing here when the Lord has arrived? other brothers and sisters were actually dying, either naturally falling asleep, or it would suggest that they were being persecuted for their beliefs and they were dying as martyrs. And so this concern was a very genuine concern. Are they forfeiting somehow the kingdom of God? Are they missing out? Are they dying before Christ arrives? Or are they dying whilst Christ is here and so they have no chance of God's coming kingdom? And and this is the reason why in the first epistle and even more so tomorrow, God willing, the Apostle Paul, under inspiration, really elaborates the events surrounding the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to address this very genuine problem. There was real acute concern that somehow the brothers and sisters were were missing out on God's coming kingdom. Have a look in in chapter 5 now, in the first epistle, and you can see that it was here. It was here at this time as well. And it became such a... Um, genuine problem that it started to cause pressure within the brotherhood. Chapter 5, then in verse 14, Now we exhort you, says Paul, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward um, all men. That phrase there, um, we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, the Revised Standard Version has exhort you, brethren, admonish the idlers. now what we 're being told here is that because there was a belief that Jesus Christ had arrived, men and women were giving up employment. What's the point in going to work when Christ is here? The kingdom of God is here, And they became idlers, and they soon became sponges off the ecclesia. And, and when we are idle, brothers and sisters, it's not a good thing, is it? There's something good, isn't there? There's something very constructive about having a disciplined day. It keeps the devil at bay, doesn't it, in many ways. There's something very good about having a very structured and very disciplined life in the Lord. Now, now, another thing picks up here, because if I were to say that that word unruly, in fact, is a military term. So they were idlers, they were giving up their jobs... Uh, And they became sponges off the Ecclesia, and tittle-tattle was taking place, and gossip, and all those ungodly things that happen sometimes in Ecclesial life. But but something else is interesting here, because that word unruly is the Greek word ataktos, A-T-A-K-T-O-S, and it's a military term, and it means to be disorderly. More specifically, it means walking out of rank that's interesting because we can go all the way back to those early chapters of Exodus and we can see that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they came out in rank, we're told. They came out as soldiers. So this theme of soldiering on to the kingdom of God started in the earliest times, when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt. And quite surprisingly, the, the, the motivation was very genuine. The Lord Jesus Christ has returned... So we're going to give up our jobs, we're going to give everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that seems a very good thing to do, doesn't it? But as far as Paul saw it, you've become unruly, undisciplined. You've taken yourselves out of rank. No longer are you walking with brothers and sisters as soldiers to the kingdom of God. But you are unruly. Now now that's worth reflecting upon, brothers and sisters, through the course of this morning. Have you put yourself out of rank? Are are you one of these disorderly ones? Am I? Or are you soldiering on with brothers and sisters to the kingdom of God? Well, this whole idea of deserting your post comes out again. Um, Come back to 2 Thessalonians now and I'm going to show you a couple of words. Uh, And and you can mark these out in your Bibles because this is the theme. They were idle, but by being idle they became disorderly in their soldiering. So so look at these words here in in verse 6 of chapter 3 in the second epistle. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Now, now this, this word here, disorderly, you might think is a little different to unruly, because these disorderly ones are now withdrawn from fellowship. If I were to say it's the same Greek word, it causes a bit of difficulty, and a degree of uncomfortableness, doesn't it? But Because we might think in our minds there's good reason to justify standing out of rank and standing alone. far as scripture is concerned there's, n- there's no reason, brothers and sisters. We are to remain in the household of faith and to work within. And this word disorderly, those that are disorderly who are going to be withdrawn from is the Greek word aktaktos. These unruly soldiers who were no longer in rank They had stood out of rank for so long, now they are cast out of the camp, that they are no longer soldiers. It's a very powerful lesson, isn't it, as we think about our own walk to God's kingdom. Where are you, brothers and sisters, as you make your way to God's coming kingdom? No doubt, we all believe we are soldiering on. But the question I ask you is where are you standing? Are you standing within, or are you standing without the household of faith? Now it was this doctrinal problem that the Lord Jesus Christ had returned, and these became idol and sponges, and by becoming unruly... Uh, they end up being withdrawn from it's a tragic situation isn't it brothers and sisters and so it's for this reason why we're going to spend a little time now in chapter four of the first epistle because the apostle Paul now is going to address this misunderstanding and he's going to give us a rich supply of information to to address this problem and and now we begin to see some of the events that that, that surround the return of the Lord Jesus Christ And, and, and these are Um, doctrines that we know as Christadelphians but I want you just to remember that Paul is sharing this information with us because of this problem it's a real letter with real people with real concerns so then verse 14 then of chapter 4 bearing in mind what we've just said and this problem here Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Can you see that? He's addressing those that are concerned that Jesus Christ has returned. And so Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you when when, when Christ returns. A whole series of things are going to happen and you're going to know about it. When, When Christ returns, you're going to know. So those who sleep in Jesus will rise again. So sleep here is a a metaphor of death. In death a person seems to be sleeping. And, And if we think about it, if our nights are not disrupted, every night we have death, don't we? Some more than others. But every night we have death. And every morning there is a resurrection. And that was certainly seen this morning when my three came out of the tent. Rubbing their eyes, wondering where they were. <laughs> but every night, have you thought about that? Every night sleep is a is a metaphor of death. And every morning when we wake up, we are reenacting the great day to come when the Lord Jesus Christ will raise the dead in Christ. And as I've already mentioned to you before, the word cemetery comes from the Greek comaterium, which means a sleeping place. This was a a traditional Protestant view at one time, that those who were dead in the graveyards, one day those graveyards would open up, and those who were long dead would stand and live, the anastasis, the the standing ones. But this truth has been lost, hasn't it? Well, Well, there's also words of exhortation. Again, let's think there's a very genuine motivation why Paul talks about those who are dying in Christ, because... They were concerned that those who are dead in Christ were missing out. So Paul says these words in verse 15 of, of chapter 4, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Notice. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now this is why he says the dead in Christ shall rise first. Don't, don't worry yourself. When Christ returns, the dead in Christ shall rise first, because they were concerned that the dead were somehow missing out. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be ever with the Lord. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven. Notice those words. The Lord himself. The, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to send an angel. He's going to come himself. And that phrase there, shall not Prevent them which are asleep at the end of verse 15. You may have um, a slightly different rendering there. It should uh, be interpreted by no means proceed. In other words, it won't come before. The sleeping in Christ are not going to lose out on anything. So Paul is really stressing the point twice here. The Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. And then again, the dead in Christ shall rise first. He's emphasizing the point twice. That when Christ returns, the very first to know will be those who are dead in Christ. So if Jesus Christ returned this very second, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know. But those who are dead in Christ, they would be reassembled, reconstituted, not only in terms of their living and, and breathing bodies but their memories and their experiences and their character how does God do that to reconstitute a man is one thing to bring back his memories and experiences is an altogether different thing altogether isn't it but God does that and they will rejoice knowing that the Lord has returned isn't that lovely and so isn't this an incredible blessing and and brothers and sisters Perhaps some of us here this morning are mourning over those who are asleep in Christ. Perhaps uh, we we have buried brothers and sisters recently, but think about it in this way. They now have a very special blessing, a blessing rests upon them that they're going to know before us. Such is God's ways that the dead in Christ shall rise first. Well, also, how are the dead revived? Well, it says there that they will be revived from their sleep, in verse 16, with a shout. Again, this this whole theme of the soldier is developed a little further now because that expression with a shout means an order, a command from a military general. So when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, and we're going to see here that he returns in a bodily form, it is he, he doesn't send an angel to to raise the dead. Jesus Christ comes and raises the dead himself personally. This is how important the dead in Christ are to him. They are dead in him. And so he does it personally and he Says an audible command, and it's a it's a command of a military general, and in other words, he's he's gathering an army, isn't he? These men and women who are dead in Christ are his army and he's the general and he commands them to stand. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable, brothers and sisters, of all the ways that the, the Apostle Paul could characterize those that sleep in Christ? He characterizes those as soldiers. You know why? Why? Because they've been soldiers. Can you see the point? God's not going to make you a soldier. You've got to become a soldier. To be a soldier of God's army. And so these men and women, when they're gathered up out of the dust, they're soldiers because they are soldier to God's kingdom. And now it's confirmed their status. They are Soldiers of the living God. Now it's interesting isn't it because it says there he's going to shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and it really gives a sense that this is an audible voice. A shout. It's an audible command. But they're dead. Yet they hear it. Let's have a look at John chapter 5 and the Lord Jesus Christ picks up this idea. John chapter 5. So the Lord Jesus Christ is going to descend from heaven and he is going to shout. It is going to be an audible voice. And so then the question uh, that goes begging here who is going to hear this voice? Well, Jesus answers this question in John chapter 5. John 5 then. Look at verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Okay, so it's the same ideas that have been expressed by Paul there. But go down to verse 28 now. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. So somehow this dust is going to hear this dust Abraham, Isaac and Jacob they're just merely dust now but they're going to hear and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of condemnation so picture this in your minds when the Lord Jesus Christ comes he's going to make this audible command and the command is only going to be heard by the dead it's going to be an audible command But only the dead in Christ shall hear it. Yet they're dead. Yet they will hear. And we who are living will not hear it, brothers and sisters. We will not hear it. What a tremendous blessing on those that now sleep in Christ. As far as God's concerned, it doesn't matter whether you're alive or dead. What matters in the mind of God is whether you have been a soul. Life or death, it matters not with God. What matters, brothers and sisters, is whether we have been soldiers. Soldiers for Christ. So only the dead will hear Christ. Come with me now to Isaiah chapter 26. The dead will be the first to know. And we've got this lovely, metaphoric, poetic language here in this prophecy. One of my favourite prophecies here. Isaiah chapter 26, and, and you can see it's all about rejoicing. It opens up, doesn't it, in verse 1, in the day, shall this song be sung? It's a, it's a song of salvation, of, of rejoicing, of recognition, of God's goodness. And there we read in verse 19, Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing ye that dwell in dust, for thy Jew is as the Jew of herbs. And the earth shall cast out the dead. And and so then, that the saints here are likened to the Jew. And as the Son of Righteousness with healing in his beams comes from the east and rises and those, those beams penetrate the ground, then the dead are cast out. They're cast out of the earth to form the cloud of witnesses. And brothers and sisters, when those men and women of yesteryear... Hear that audible voice and they are reassembled and their characters are revived. What is the first thing that they do as they stand by their grave? What do they do? Oh look, tells you nice Isaiah twenty six What do they do? What would you do? You sink. What a scene that is, brothers and sisters. As they come out of the ground, there's no anxiety that they're about to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. No doubt there will be a time when that will hit them. But their first experience is that they have been released from the shackles of death. That they are free for a time at least. And they sing in God's goodness. What a remarkable scene that is, brothers and sisters. Next time, if the Lord remains away and we stand by a graveside, let's remember that. Remember Isaiah 26: The brother and sister that you bury will soon stand and sing at that very place of God's goodness, and they will have every reason to sing. Well, what about those that are alive? If the Lord Jesus Christ returns today, what's going to happen to us? Well, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's rather dramatic, in fact. Verse 17, it couldn't be any clearer, could it? Then we which are alive, couldn't be any clearer. The dead in Christ shall rise first and they'll sing there at the side of their graves. But there, in verse 17, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We will be caught up, it says there. We will be caught up. Can just keep a finger there? And I want to just illustrate the use of this phrase because I've been asked a number of times. Come with me to Acts chapter 8. You you might know this connection. If you don't, it will be helpful. Acts chapter 8. And here you've got Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And we're going to come across this phrase used elsewhere. And the application will be very helpful. So, So you remember, don't you, the Ethiopian eunuch there in the chariot and he's reading the book of Isaiah and he doesn't understand. And here... Philip arrives to explain what he is reading, and he is baptised. And and, and as soon as Philip comes out of the water, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is is brought out of the water, that that Philip is snatched away. And and look at verse um, 39. Let's have a look at verse 39 here. And when they were both come out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. And Philip was found in Azatos. And passing through, he preached in all the cities, till he came to Caesarea. Well, if you look at the end of verse 27, you see that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading round about Jerusalem. And he's committed to the waters of Atson, round about Jerusalem. And then Philip is found there in Azotus, which is about 20 miles out of Jerusalem. In verse 40. And the phrase I want you to look at is caught away. It's the same word there as caught up. And look at that. He is snatched away. He is taken instantly from one place to the other. And what happens to Philip? He just continues with his preaching. And, and that's what's going to happen to us, brothers and sisters. I don't think there'll be a moment's delay. When we are caught up, we are caught up. I, I don't think there will be much time for preparation. When you look at that phrase used throughout the New Testament, you will find that there's no time for preparation. Maybe we'll have some, a little. Do you know, my, my own grandmother, um, every time she went to bed, she would put out her a, a breast frock and her shoes and a little hat and she would place it on her chair just in case the angel came that night and she had no time to prepare and she wanted to put on her best clothes for Jesus. Isn't that lovely? I think that spirit is missing a little bit. Something that my my, my grandmother's been um, asleep now for over 20 years but I still remember that as a little boy. The idea in the Greek is something of tremendous power. Another example is how our a wolf engulfs a lamb. Now, there's nothing frightening in this experience. The idea of the word is that it is something that is so powerful, you cannot, you cannot prevent it. You cannot stay it. You're going with it. Your time has come to meet the Lord. You won't have a dialogue with the angel, brothers and sisters. It won't take place in your time, in your convenience. It won't. It will happen immediately. And and there's something here, very powerful, I think, that Philip continued what he was doing. And so there's something about we will be taken quickly and we will have the experiences that we had just a moment earlier. We will just be transported from one place to another. It's like getting off an aeroplane and into a new country. It will just happen. And you'll be there with the Lord. Well, of course it tells us there that we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. Who's the them? It's the dead, isn't it? So we're going to meet the Lord with the dead in Christ. And we don't know how it's going to happen. Some say that it will be the dead in Christ who will knock on your door. I don't know. But what I do know is that we will make our way with them. Though the dead in Christ rise first, we go together. We are transported together. What a a picture that will be, brothers and sisters. The ecclesial world. And about 50,000 Christadelphians around the world. And there will be others who will be responsible and will all be taken. Gone. But given that we're just one in 100,000 across the world's population, I don't think the world will even notice. And perhaps it will be in a time of great trouble. That was never was. So the world won't even care. We're a rounding error of the world's population. Well, these clouds, and and, and we don't need to spend too much time here because it's obvious, isn't it? Look at the references here, a great cloud of witnesses. And we've looked at Isaiah chapter 26 with the Jew that will form the cloud of witnesses. Daniel 7, verse 13, this wonderful... Picture of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. And then Matthew 24, the Olivet Prophecy. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so then these clouds are representative of the saints in glory. And we will meet, notice verse 17, the Lord in the air. Now that's a very interesting word because the word meet means for the purpose of meeting. And it gives the idea of meeting a great dignitary. The emperor has arrived. And the implication in that word is that we will greet him as the royal dignitary. The saints will welcome him as the king of the earth. There won't be any questions who Jesus Christ is and what he is about to become. It will be for all of us, brothers and sisters, obvious. Acutely obvious. That we are in the presence of extraordinary greatness. And it will be with deep humility that we come and speak to him. Every man has to give a confession of those things that he's done in his body. We, do you know, if I were to say to you, you know, next week all of you are going to meet the Queen. So get your tickets, and I'll arrange it for you. Or you go, oh, Stephen, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Love to meet the Queen. Have you ever thought each of us are going to have a personal conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ? And that conversation is all about what we've done. You know what? Even if we're not granted the kingdom of God, and that's what we want, because that's our hope, isn't it? That's the vision. But you know what? What a blessing. To have a personal one-to-one conversation with the Son of the Living God. If our lives just finish there, that's so undeserving, isn't it? When was the last time you spoke face-to-face with the Queen in Buckingham Palace? Well, unless you surprise me, you'd say never. You're going to have a one-to-one conversation about you. With the one who sat at the right hand of the father in heaven. That's extraordinary. What a privilege brothers and sisters. And you're going to see him as a king. Now this is why. Look at this. Look at this here. This is why. Paul says the king is coming look how the word the Lord is mentioned here look at verse 15 the word of the Lord in chapter 4 can you see that the word of the Lord then verse 15 the coming of the Lord then verse 16 the Lord himself verse 17 to meet the Lord and then verse 17 to be always with the Lord that there's going to be no doubt about it. he's the Lord the Lord of Lord and king of kings and he's coming and he's coming for us. I think we forget that from times. We, we, we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ coming to establish God's kingdom and, 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 and establishing a period of, of, of peace and righteousness for a thousand years and then giving the kingdom to God who will be all in all. Yes, of course, that's right. But he's coming for us. Have you thought about that? He, he's coming for you. This is a personal visit He's embarking upon. Yes, of course, he's going to do all the things in the Earth, but what he wants more than anything else is to be with his brothers and sisters. That's what he wants more than anything else. He's coming for you. When is he coming? Oh, we want him so quickly, don't we? When is the Lord coming? Are you feeling tired waiting? Is your faith flickering because he's not here? When, when is he coming? Let's have a look. When is the Lord coming? Well, uh, this timing of the Lord is picked up now in chapter 5. Because now Paul has established the point. He's not here now, brothers and sisters, in Thessalonica. You, you're not missing out on the kingdom. So then the obvious question is, well, when, when, when is the Lord coming Verse 1 then of chapter 5, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the light. Now, I want you just to notice that expression there, the the day. Jesus had already said, hadn't he? But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. That's Mark chapter 13. No one knows the day. And this is the day of the Lord. And we don't know the day. But we are to watch for the signs and the times of his coming. We should all be so attentive. Don't, don't let the signs of the times be something just a few of us are interested in. And we like listening to those brethren from the platform. This is something all of us should be involved in. Because it relates to our own Salvation. This is not something that should be left to the few. This is something that should be done by all of us. We should all be caring about the signs and the times. Now now look at this, it's interesting isn't it? Because here, the day, look at this, have you ever thought about this? For yourselves know perfectly, verse 2, that the day of the Lord, so it's the day. It's the day of the Lord but he comes as a thief in the night. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a contradiction there, isn't there? You, you, you're in the day, you're in the day of the Lord, but it's going to come as a thief in the night. There's a paradox. It's a day, but it's also in the night. Look at verse 4. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief and we're going to develop this now but it's important brothers and sisters perhaps the world has never been darker perhaps the world has never been darker but we are men and women of the light we are people of the day I'm going to show you how we're going to do that but we're in the night but we are to act as the day I'm going to show you how to do that in a moment but before that, let's just look at this timing. Look at this. For when they shall say... So, so the darkness is related to when you hear a cry. You, you know it's dark. We know it's dark, don't we? I've been talking to the young people. We know it's dark out there. But if you don't know it's dark, Paul says you're going to hear something. If you've got your eyes closed and you don't know it's dark... <laughs> then you're going to hear something and it says therefore when they shall say peace and safety then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape now th- this idea of peace there gives the idea of feeling of no alarm and, and 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 safety an idea conveys the idea of feeling no threat and it's then when this message goes out across the world that sudden destruction cometh upon them as a woman in labor and and i'm sure lots of children here and many mums and dads and grandparents and we know, don't we um, when our wives are getting a little large and we think, well, it's going to go on forever and then the first contraction takes place I went to bits, actually I went to pieces and then the baby comes and you think, oh I know that for next time and then it happens when you have baby (laughs) too And baby, Now, Brother John might have learnt his experience on baby six, I don't know, but, but by baby three, I'd still not got to grips with it, how quickly it happens. And that's the picture. You think all is well, and then the first contraction, and suddenly a whole sequence of events takes place, and you've got the child. And that's how the return of Christ Are we hearing? Are we sensing those first contractions? Perhaps we are, brothers and sisters. Perhaps we are. Now, uh, Paul is also drawing our attention to something because it's interesting. Nero, who was the emperor at this time, he had visited um, various uh, Roman cities and this coin was issued. In fact, it became a coin in general circulation. It's the coin of peace and safety. The slogan uh, under Nero's head is Nero Securitas, which means peace and safety under Nero. So the very words that Paul uses are words that he would have found in his pocket. And there was Nero. And he was instilling confidence in all these Roman citizens. I will give you peace and safety. Now what was happening for Jews and Bible-believing Christians? Well, they were lit up, weren't they, as, as burning fiery torches at night to light up the streets of Rome. Was there any peace and safety for a Bible-believer? Uh, of course not. And that's the point when they cry peace and safety that is a time when sudden destruction comes to Jerusalem again that's interesting isn't it, it's like a play out again of a modern day Nero, maybe that is Putin, perhaps it is the king of the north but everyone would have known of that phrase, peace and safety, I want to look a little more closely now at these words because I think Um, a very important picture is being painted. So that word peace means a state of national tranquility, peace between individuals, also speaks of prosperity. Safety is a slightly different word. It means firmness, stability, certainty, security from enemies and danger. And when this is happening, then sudden destruction takes place. Now the question is, the obvious question is, who says this. Who makes this announcement? Well, you might have an answer in your mind. Who is it? Who is the one crying peace and safety in these modern times? Who is it? Well, the answer is in our Bibles. Have a look down at uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, and look, for they shall say peace and safety. Can you see that? For they shall say peace and safety. Well, who are the they? Well, you have to go down to verse 5. No, in verse 6, actually, to find out who the they are. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So here, Paul is writing about Israel and the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those that are without the covenants of promise are those that cry peace and safety. And so, brothers and sisters, it's not Israel that cries peace and safety. And though we see lots of headlines of Israel crying peace and safety, it is the nations around that cry peace and safety for Israel. That's the distinction. It's really important. It's when we see national leaders crying peace and safety for a land that's not theirs, because they have an ulterior motive, that's when the pangs begin. Brothers and sisters, we've seen that, haven't we? We've seen many national headlines. You know, I was in Israel recently and I said said to the chief rabbi in the Sheva, um, um, there, in, in, the old, in the old synagogue. I said, who are your friends? Who are your international friends? And they said, Well, our favourite man is, is Donald Trump. We, we, we call him the modern day Cyrus. He's a friend of Israel. And I said, yes he is, he's a friend of Israel. And then I said to the chief rabbi of the most senior synagogue in the world, Have you got any other friends? You know what he said? Vladimir Putin. He's a friend of Israel. We've got so many Russian Jews in Jerusalem. That was the chief rabbi in Jerusalem four months ago in a private conversation with me in his synagogue. It's all set. It's all set, brothers and sisters. I believe we're on the brink. Peace and safety is wanted by the world. It's desired by the world leaders. Look look, look at this. Listen to these words. Isaiah 57. You know these words. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Isaiah 57 tells us it's the nations of the earth. That are shouting out peace. But they are an agitated sea. There is no peace whatsoever. And so brothers and sisters. I ask you the question. Of course we are excited about the signs of the times. We are on the brink of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something that our brethren have been waiting for many many years. But why are we given the signs of the times? To get excited. To fill out your Bibles. To track Russia. And the Vatican. And. Britain and America and Israel? No. We do do that. But that's not the point of the signs of the times. Come with me to Luke chapter 21. Are these signs here to terrify us? No. Let's see why we have the signs of the times. And this is why we don't leave it to a few to do the signs of the times for us. This is why we all take an active interest in the signs of the times. Luke chapter 21, verse 25. The Olivet Prophecy. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the star earth distress of nations with perplexity the sea and the waves roaring men's hearts are failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven shall be Shaken. Verse thirty-four. Take heed to yourselves. This is a personal message. Lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and so that they comes upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore, and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all those things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the son of man brothers and sisters what, 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 what is being said here is that though we see the nations in perplexity though we see the world leaders crying out peace and safety though we see Jerusalem no longer trodden down of the Gentiles which is Luke chapter 21 we've seen all of these things and we're incredibly excited about these things the message for us is that we do not become intoxicated in a godless age look at it Verse 34, take heed to yourselves so that any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness of the cares of this life. And if we do, we read there in verse 36 our destruction comes. So what's the point of the signs of the times? To get excited, to get thrilled, of course it is. It's, It's lovely to hear it. But it's to act upon it. To apply the exhortation to yourself and to your family and to Ecclesia and those that you love. Are you ready to meet the king? Because he's on his way. Can I show you something else? Have a look at Matthew chapter 24. Because I believe this peace and safety also has a very direct exhortation to every man, to every woman, to every family, to every Ecclesia. You could think that this peace and safety is this great political cry that is heard and it's at a national, international level. No, 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 it's not. There's a very personal message, I believe, here. Look at Matthew 24. We're picking up the same account, aren't we, from Luke chapter 21, but we're going to look at it from a slightly different perspective now. Verse 43 of Matthew 24. But know this that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched, and would have not suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh, who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season, blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing verily i say unto you that ye shall make him ruler over all his goods but and if that servant shall say in his heart my lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken the lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder and appoint him in his portion with the hypocrites there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth think about that what have you just learned I'll tell you what it says. There will be those in the Brotherhood it tells us there that will feel very comfortable in this age. That will have the attitude that the Lord delays his coming and have and they have their own peace and safety. Can you see that? The the exhortation here, brothers and sisters, when we ever say in our hearts, peace and safety is now, in this lifetime, in our personal circumstances, then our sudden destruction comes. How how can you make your life peace and safety? Well, i suggest, when you make this life your home, your permanent home, when this life becomes your Eden, your paradise and there's nothing really to look forward to I'm happy to be here now that's your peace and safety and if we ever have that attitude then our sudden destruction comes isn't that interesting? Paul picks up this this big international theme when the nations of the earth cry peace and safety but there's something going on in the household of faith when we cry peace and safety in this life then our sudden destruction comes. Now, you, you know, don't you? Just, just think laterally. You know that that's a Bible theme. Can we have a look at Revelation? You, you know this, don't you? This is the letter to the Ecclesia of Laodicea. The final Ecclesia. Well, these are not new ideas, are they? Perhaps a, a fresh perspective, but it's not a new theme. Revelation chapter 3. This was an Ecclesia that was very comfortable in life. Verse 17, to the Ecclesia at Laodicea, because thou sayest, I am rich and increase with good, you could write in your margin, they cry, peace and safety, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Look at verse 16, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That's the destruction, isn't it? Suddenly, so now we, we, we see that this is the applicable theme for the ecclesias in the last generation. A time of Laodicea, a time of greatness, of richness, of wealth, of plenty. We all have plenty relatively, don't we? It's what we do with our resources that matters. If we are confident in our resources and our assets and we view it as a time of peace and safety, then brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ will not give us God's kingdom. He will not because we've made our kingdom here and now. We've made our kingdom here and now. Well, come back with me to 1 Thessalonians and and we'll look at chapter 4 now. I, I just want to, again, just reconnect a few thoughts with this soldier of Christ. Because... Look there, I- I've got them marked. Look how the Lord descends from heaven. He comes with a shout, notice, a voice, and a trumpet. And-, and these are all military terms. So the way that he calls and reassembles and reconstitutes and takes those dead and living to the judgment seat is all under this military umbrella. The general now is gathering his army. Men and women, as soldiers of Christ, travelling to Israel. So with that, after Paul has talked about the peace and safety, now in chapter 5, have a look at what he says here in verse 6. So therefore, He says, as we've just looked, let us not sleep as do others do, but let us watch and be sober, for they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken, are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. How lovely there. If if we're in the day, men and women of the day, though it's dark outside, we've got the triplet, haven't we? There you are, the end of verse 8. You've got faith, hope, and love. Well, we've seen that already, haven't we? That lovely triplet in verse 3 of chapter 1. So now you've got the soldier of Christ. It's no longer an ecclesia, it's an individual soldier. And now this soldier is associated with the qualities of the inner man a faith in God, a love for the Lord, and a hope of Christ's return. Have you got that? Have you got a faith in God, a love for the Lord, and a hope? Of Christ's return and we're being told here that this is the way that we can be preserved as soldiers of Christ. If we've got faith in God and love for the Lord and, and hope of the return of Christ. Isn't that lovely? So simple. A lifetime to develop. But I haven't answered the question. How can we be living in the night and be men and women of the day? Now brothers and sisters if you've not seen this. Oh your hearts are going to soar. Not for my words certainly not. From God's words. This is lovely. Put this in your margin. Don't miss this one. This is a gem. Come with me to Romans 13. Here the Apostle Paul elsewhere explains. How we can be in the night. But men and women of the day. Look at this. This is. Oh my heart absolutely. Soared. When I came across this. Romans 13 then. Uh, And you'll see the context right away. Verse 12. The night is far spent. Oh, how night has tarried. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? The night. We're in the night. We're in the night. This is not the day of the Lord. We're in the night. We're in the darkest hour. And as we know, the darkest hour is just before the dawn. We're in the darkest hour, brothers and sisters. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armour of light. Let us walk honestly in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not the provision for the flesh to fulfil the lusts thereof. How do you do it? How do we do it? How do we live in a night but be men and women of the day? It's interesting because verse 12 tells us that we are in the night. So we've got to cast off the works of the darkness. Right? So things happen at night, the unseen things the evil things and we as brothers and sisters are not to be associated with any of those things and verse 13 says and I've got them underlined here let us walk honestly as in the day now brothers and sisters that's your excitation you might not have noticed that underline it how can you be in the night but you walk honestly as in the day well we've got to understand what the day is The day is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the time when the Lord Jesus Christ is in the earth and he's reigning supremely from Jerusalem. And Paul is saying that you've got to live today as if Christ is reigning today. I'll repeat that. You've got to live today As if Christ is here, reigning today. How would you live, brothers and sisters, if the Lord Jesus Christ was reigning in Jerusalem? And and, and you know that that you're going to go and meet him soon. How would you be living in Malatulin? Would you be living like you are today? Would you have the same plans for Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday next week? Or would you just change those plans a little bit? That's the point. We are to live during this time of darkness as if the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning supremely in Jerusalem. And suddenly, if you live like that, you're not living in faith, you're living in reality. And our faith has to be so strong... That salvation has already been achieved, been achieved and Christ is here. That, that should be our faith, brothers and sisters. It, 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 we, we shouldn't have faith that Christ one day is going to return. It should be absolutely solid in our minds. So solid that Christ is here. It's a done deal, as it were. It's going to happen. It's an inevitability. It's not a leap of faith that Christ is going to return. As far as we're concerned, it's done. It's happening. It's assured. So if it's assured, why do we live the way that we do? Come back to 1 Thessalonians. And I just want to pick out a little verse there. We looked at it the other day. Can you remember this? This is the answer. Can you remember when I said these words in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6? But now when Timotheus came from unto us and brought us good things of your faith and, and love or charity and that ye have good remembrance of us always, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Can you remember that? Timothy had come back and he would got a report for Paul and Paul was so excited about the report. But what was it missing? It was hope. Hope for what? Hope for what? God's coming kingdom. And so, brothers and sisters, if you have a problem with hope, The exhortation is, is to live today as if Christ is here. That's what the ecclesia was being encouraged to do. If you live your life as if Christ is here, you don't struggle with hope. Because it's a living reality, isn't it? Christ is here. And he is here. He sees all things. And all we're waiting for is the parousia, the coming of the king, but it's an inevitability. And we're at the brink, we're in the darkest hour, just before the dawn. It's going to happen. We've seen all the signs of the times. So, why do we live the way that we do? So, brothers and sisters. With those thoughts to ponder, I'll just leave you with three questions that we've considered this morning. How are we preparing ourselves for the parousia, for the coming of the king? There's an inevitability about the coming of the king. He's on his way, as it were, he just hasn't arrived yet. But it's happening, and it will happen. Are we actively interested in watching the signs of the times in the light of Bible prophecy? And we should all say emphatically yes. So how are those signs changing our lives? Because that's why we have them. And then finally, the things that we've just considered now. Are we living as if Christ was here? That you can see him with your very eyes. No longer do you need the eyes of faith. He's here in Jerusalem and we're going to meet him. The cry has gone out. And if we can't see him there in Jerusalem today, how can we make sure that we develop that vision more clearly in our hearts and minds?